God, we love you, and uh, we are uh, just so thankful for you this morning. God, we're thankful for, for this word that we can hold in our hands, that we can talk about, that we can digest, that we can read, that we can just hunger for, God. I pray that you would give us a hunger for scripture this morning. God, I pray that as we talk about, about your word, that you would begin to challenge us and to, to shape us into how you would, you would have us interact with your word. God, would you speak through me this morning again? God, would it not just be my words that are speaking, but would they be your words for your people on your day? God, we are here to hear from you, me as well. God, we love you, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are, uh, again, going to start this series, Reason for God. In partnership with our small groups, we're going to be talking uh, about some of these questions and objections that people have uh, to our faith. And, and again, like I said, our goal on Sunday is not to, not to equip you with the right answers for your small group. Uh, I'm not going to, to give you the ammo you need to go into your small group ready to go. And uh, I want you to, to struggle in your small groups with some of these questions and to, to talk through these questions. But we're going to take kind of a broader overview of some of these questions, some of these topics. Um, and, uh, and this week is the Bible. We're going to be talking about the Bible, and there are, there are so many questions that people have about the Bible, and for good reason, right? This book, this, this Bible that I hold in my hands is the core of our faith. It's the core of who we are. It teaches us. It does all kinds of stuff, and we'll talk about some of that later, but this is the core of who we are, and so if, if people are going to understand our faith, of course they're going to have questions about the book that we base it on. It's logical to have questions about this book. And so, so people ask things like, aren't there, so many, aren't there just so many contradictions in Scripture? Right? How, do I, how do I believe the, the, the miracle? Like this question I was talking about earlier, the miracles. How, I see miracles in the Bible, but I don't see anything like that in real life where I live right now. And so how can I trust that the Gospels are true when I don't see any of that? Right? How, can I, how can I trust the Bible? Isn't the Bible just a myth? Isn't the Bible just some pretend thing that people made up to base a religion around? Isn't that just a myth? Hasn't, hasn't science disproven the Bible? Right? These, these are questions. How does, how does a 2,000-year-old book apply to my life in 2018? Right? We, we hear some of these questions, and, and, and for some of us, we don't quite know how to answer those questions. Are there contradictions in Scripture? Does this 2,000-year-old book apply to my life today, or is it just other things? Has science actually disproven the Bible? Yeah, we'll talk about some of these questions in small groups, and I'm, I'm plugging small groups really hard right now because I want you to go to one, but, but we're going to talk about some of these questions in small groups, and, but, but here's the, the main objection for the week. Right? The, every week there's going to be kind of a, a main objection that we, that we talk about, and here's the objection. People say that there are many good things in the Bible, but you should not take it literally. You must not insist that it is entirely trustworthy because some parts of the Bible are wrong, historically unreliable, and cultural, culturally regressive. This is the question that we're going to be struggling with today and in our small groups as well. What, what is this Bible? What is this book that, that I hold in my hands, and hopefully you hold in your hands this morning. Let's just take a, a, just a, a quick moment to just, just talk through the history of this book. Right? Well, how did this book come to be? Because you know, there's, there's some people out there that believe this book is, is written straight from the hand of God, and that is, that is just not true. 
God did not in heaven write the Bible and drop it down for human beings to, to read. This is, not, this is not what we believe as Christians. We don't believe that the finger of God actually wrote you know, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Matthew and Mark. We don't. God inspired over 40 authors to put this book together that we have in our hands today. There are over 40 authors in the, in the Bible. Uh, there, are, there are 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There are 1,189 chapters, 929 in the Old Testament, 260 in the New. There are 41,173 verses in Scripture. All right, the shortest chapter, Psalm 117. The longest chapter, Psalm 119. And there is a beautiful psalm right in the middle of that, Psalm 118, I encourage you to read. Shortest verse, John eleven twenty five. Jesus wept. Longest verse, Esther 8, 9. And I didn't bother to memorize it. I apologize, it is, it is pretty long. <laughs> there, this is, a, you know, we begin to, to have this, this word of God, if you want to go all the way back, to about 1400 to 1500 B.C., when, when God actually does write with his own finger the Ten Commandments. This is the first time we have the written word of God. But in, in, in about uh, 500 B.C. is when we begin to have the Old Testament put together in the way that we have it now. The Hebrew Scriptures, if you will. Written on, written on scrolls. Right, and these scrolls were from, from animal skin. They could be deer or cow, just, just not pig. Right? Pig would be unclean, and so that's just not the thing to write a Bible on. And so these scrolls would be on animal skins. And some of these scrolls, if you had, for instance, if you had the whole Torah, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, if you had all of these Old Testament books on one scroll, the scroll would be about 150 feet long. There was, a, there was, someone, there was something, something written that said it would take a whole flock of sheep to, to, put, to, to put the Torah on a scroll. 150 feet long on the scroll. And then that's again, in 500 B.C., we have these 39 books of the Old Testament. In 393 A.D. is the first time that we have all of the books of the New Testament put together in the order that they're in and canonized or, or recognized as what it is. So we don't actually, we have this, this, this whole book put together in about 400 A.D., 393, 400 A.D. is when we begin to, to have the whole Bible as one. Right, we, we move on, and in about 500 A.D., just about 100 and, 110 or so years later, the Bible is written in over 500 languages. People everywhere are reading the Bible in their own language. They're, they're learning about God. They are, they are going after and chasing after this. But 100 years later, in 600 A.D., the Catholic Church decides that there can only be one language for the Bible, Latin. And so all the other Bibles are are discarded, most are burned. Because the, the Catholic Church, the, the, they decided only one language, Latin. And this was a, this was a corrupt move on their part. Right? These priests would begin to, to charge people for forgiveness of their sins. Right? They, they, most people couldn't read Latin. Can you read Latin? I can't read Latin. Most people couldn't read Latin. And so most people didn't, didn't know what the Word of God said. And so from about 600 to about 1400 A.D., we begin to call this period the Dark Ages because most people could not read Scripture for themselves. They relied on the interpretation of priests from the Catholic Church. But God is good. And even in these Dark Ages, there was a movement 
from about 500 A.D. to about 1300 A.D., there was this movement, and it was a movement of people uh, called the Coldies. There was like a secret Bible society, and these people would, they, they held on to Scripture. They would teach each other Scripture. They would disciple each other, but it was illegal at that point to have any other language but Latin, and so they kind of kept to themselves, and they, they had this small group of believers who are reading the reading scripture for themselves not relying just on the on the corrupt teachings of the catholic priests at that point and out of this movement there begins to god begins to move and you might think man the dark ages that's like 800 years like how do we get out of these dark ages if if there's only one language for 800 years how do we get out of this and it's because of this movement this this movement of this small bible group who is beginning to disciple and teach and out of this movement <clears throat> came a man in, in 1380 named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was the first person to translate the Bible into English. Now, this is before printing presses, though, so, so there was a translation of the Bible in English. And translations, writing all these translations, didn't, it takes a long time. You know, it, it, they said it took him about 10 months to a year to have this one translation of the Bible into English. Right? It takes a long time before the printing press to get all this stuff out. And it, and it just honestly just puts you in awe at how we have the Old Testament scriptures in, in, in go from, from, from way back when, and, and they don't miss anything. And here, I'll just go back and talk about that. The process here is just so tedious. You would have these monasteries and monks who would, who would literally devote their lives to keeping these scrolls and to keeping these, these scriptures and to, as they copy them, they made sure that it, was, that it was word for word. If there was one mess up, there wasn't like a cross it out and write another word. If there was one mess up, the whole thing was garbage. It was burned and they would start over again just to maintain the, the authority, just to maintain the, the consistency of scripture. It takes a while to translate scripture. And so, so like I said, John Wycliffe was the first one to, to have an English translation. And it was before mass production. It took him months to do it. And in 1415, well, actually he, John Wycliffe, was burned at the stake for having an English translation of the Bible that he made himself. One of, one of John's disciples, if you will, John, not John the Baptist, but John Wycliffe, one of his, his followers continued this mission of, of, of creating the Bible and, and, uh, and writing it in English and making sure people had an English translation of, of Scripture that was, that was well written and that was, that was true. John Wycliffe was also burned at the stake for doing what he was doing. And actually, he was burned around the pages of John Wycliffe's English Bible. That's how they burned him at the stake, was, was they, they lit on fire this English Bible and burned him at the stake. Right, these, these, these men have, have, have done all kinds of things. They continue, they do that. And, and, and one of Huss's final words, I don't know if they were the final words, but one of his final words was, in the next 100 years, God will raise up a man that people will not be able to ignore. About 100 years later, a man named Martin Luther comes along. And begins to be so fed up with the corruption in the church that he, that he in 1517 nails his, his 95 thesis on the door of the church. On the door of the Wittenberg church. And it's the knock heard around the world, you could say. 
And, he, and John Luther begins to, or Martin, John Luther, Martin Luther begins to translate the Bible into German. And he begins to mass produce the Bible. And he begins to, to, to encourage people to read on their own and to, to, to take a step back and to look at the corruption of the church and to say, this isn't scripture, this isn't right, this isn't the way God would have us. This is, the, this is the Reformation, the reformation of the church, if you will. Martin Luther in 1517. In 1526, one of Martin Luther's friends, who you might recognize this name, William Tyndale, begins to translate the Bible into English. And now he has mass production capabilities. And so the Bible is now mass produced into the English language. In 1539, remember this is still illegal, right? It's still illegal. So in 1526 he's, he's doing this. He's, he's creating, he's mass producing English Bibles for everybody to read. And in 1536 he as well is caught. He's jailed for 500 days. And he's burned. One of his last prayers was God open the eyes of the king of England and three years later the king of England not only legalizes the Bible to be produced but funds it in many ways and the story keeps going fast forward to today and we have so many translations of the English Bible that it's ridiculous you can have the, the word-for-word translations. You can have the, the paraphrase translations if you're really having trouble understanding what the word-for-word is. There's so many different translations in English that every single person can read script. The Bible is translated into hundreds and hundreds of languages, and every single person, and except for, for the, the small amount of, of unreached people groups that we don't know their language, so we can't translate it into their language yet, except for, except for those people. Almost everybody in the world can read Scripture in their own tongue. Yeah, this, this book that we hold in our hands is not just, a, you know, sometimes we, just, we go to Lifeway or we go to one of these Christian bookstores and we, we pick out the coolest looking Bible and we think, oh, that would be kind of cool to, to have the reference in the middle or to, you know, we just, we don't think about where this came from. This, is, this book has a lot of history behind it. This book has a lot of truth in it. And, and sometimes I think we take it for granted, this book, there, there, there was a lot that had to go on in the history of our world to let you be sitting here in this place right now with a Bible that you can call your own. There's many of us that have more than one Bible. I have a whole shelf of Bibles with a lot of different translations, right? Many of us have more than one Bible. This is, this is unthinkable in the, in the early you know, 9th, 10th century. This is, that would just be mind-blowing. Every, every, what do you mean everybody has a copy of the Bible? I thought just the priest got to tell us what the Bible... No, every single person is able to have a copy of Scripture. Every single person. This book is, is a miracle, and it has a, a history. And, and a, a, honestly, a lot of the history I just skipped over because I only have so much time. <laughs> but this book, this, this is an amazing book. But here's the, the question that people wonder. People... Yeah, it's, it's fun to know where the Bible came from. But, but what does it mean for me? Why should I read this book? Why, why should I even open up these pages? Why should, I, why should I blow the dust off the Bible that my, that my mom gave me at some point and actually open it up and read it? Why, why should I do this? I think there's, there's quite a few reasons why, obviously. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm pretty partial. 
But I think there's quite a few reasons to open it up. This is a book that is, that is so essential to us as believers. It's so essential to our faith. We give this book many names, right? We call it the Bible, the Holy Bible. Mine says Holy Bible. Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures. Right? We, we call it all kinds of stuff. The Word of God, I think, is the one that I favor. And the one that I want to talk about this morning. Because this book isn't just a book of, of words. It's not just a book that, that 40 plus authors put together for us. This is, this is the Word of God. These authors that wrote the Bible are not just doing it out of their own mind. Right? They were, we believe that, that, that Scripture was divinely inspired by God. That God, that, that God basically wrote Scripture through these, these 40 men, 40 plus men. Divinely inspired by God. So what does it mean for us to, to have the Word of God readily available to, to us all at any moment? I don't even have to have a book anymore. I can get out my phone and have any translation I want in about 30 seconds. The Bible is readily available. The Word of God is readily available for you and for me. So what do we do with it? What does it mean? How do, we, how do we interact with the Word of God? This morning, we're going to kind of take a, a tour through Scripture. We're going to take a, a three or four stop tour in Scripture. And we're going to, we're going to end in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to go there. But we're going to start our, our journey this morning in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 to 4. And just to give you a little context, the Egyptians uh, have just been enslaving the Israelites for about 400 years. God has, has performed miracles and, and the ten plagues and all of this kind of stuff. You can read about this in, in Scripture. And, and the, the Israelites are, are out of Egypt now. They're wandering in the desert and they're beginning to question a little bit. Now, why did God do this? What, why did God bring us out here? Did he just bring us out here to starve? We were well fed in Egypt. Why are we here right now? Like We were at least okay. Yeah, they worked us hard, but we weren't wandering in the desert hungry. Right? What is God doing right now? And so we begin in, in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out to the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and to gather enough for that day. In this way... I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. I'm going to stop right there. I am going to rain down bread from heaven called manna. I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. And in this way, I'm going to test them. I'm going to see if they will follow my instructions. He begins to give them instructions, right? On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And so, so Moses and Aaron, they give them this, this instruction, and they do. They, 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 for the most part, they follow the instructions. Some try to gather too much on the sixth day, and it, and it goes to waste. 
All right, turn with me, stop number two to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Deuteronomy, just a, a few books over from, from Exodus, just two books over from Exodus, chapter eight, starting at verse one. This is God speaking. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way to the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order, that you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is what God is teaching his people as they're in the wilderness. He's reminding them this in Deuteronomy. Just remember what happened. You were hungry, and I fed you with food that you did not make. But it was to remind you that man does not live on on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. On every word of God. What does it mean to just to know that we are that we are not sustained by any any amount of food that we can eat during the day? We are sustained first and foremost by this book, by the word of God. Of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but instead on every word from the mouth of God. Amen. Fast forward to, to Matthew chapter 4. Some of you knew I was going to go there already. Good job. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is, is uh, just, well, he hasn't even really started his ministry yet. He's just about to start his ministry, and, and uh, he gets baptized. And, and in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Imagine that. This is probably the, one of the biggest understatements of Scripture right here. Right? Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. No kidding. Right? <clears throat> but think about the similarities here. Jesus, where is he? He's in the wilderness. The Israelites were in the wilderness, and they're both hungry. And so Satan comes to tempt Jesus, and, and he says, the tent, in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell those stones to become bread. And just listen to Jesus' response here. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting scripture, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, to Satan, and he's saying, hey, listen, my sustenance doesn't come from anything that you could possibly give me. My sustenance doesn't come from any sort of food, any sort of bread. My sustenance comes from the mouth of God. My sustenance comes from from the words of God that speak to me and and tell me about himself and tell me all kinds of stuff. That my sustenance does not come from you. It does not come from food. It comes from the word of God. And I think this is just such a, you guys are kind of quiet today. This is such a powerful thing. This is such a cool thing that Jesus is saying, look, look, this, this word of God, this is how important it is. This is more important than your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner. This is more important than any sort of craving that you have of for, for whatever is going to fill your stomach, right? This, is, this book, these words of God are going to fill you in more powerful ways than food or anything ever could. 
This is the word of God. This is, this is what we hunger for. This is what we want for. This is what we need. This is what sustains us in our life. If you've ever fasted, you know what I'm talking about. You know that sometimes it's like day three and you're sitting on a fast and, and you're not hungry. Why is that? Because you have just been been just feasting on the Word of God, and, and you're sustained. You can be sustained on the Word of God. This Word of God is more important than anything that you could fill your stomach with. Let the Word of God fill your heart and fill your mind and fill your soul. This is, this is what we desire. This is what we want. What does it mean to, to live off of every mouth, from every word from the mouth of God? Follow me in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. This is Paul talking to Timothy, who was a pastor of a church. Paul is near the end of his life. Timothy is not. Timothy is a young pastor at this church, leading these people. And Paul gives Timothy some advice here in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I just want to read, I want to read this whole thing again, verse 14 all the way to 16. I want you to, to just think about this through the lens of hungering for the words of God. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We hunger and are sustained by every word from the mouth of God. Second Timothy here gives us some of the ways in which we are sustained by the word of God. But what does it look like for us to be people who hunger for the word of God more than any food? Who understand that this word of God is, is sustaining us, that this word of God is, can fill us in, 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 in more and can fill us in better ways than any food could ever do. What does it mean for us? What do we need to what do we need to do? Well, I think there's three things that we need to make sure of. First of all, we need to make sure the word is supreme among us. We need to make sure the word is is supreme. The word is is first. And foremost, the word is the priority. The word is, is, is in front of everything. This is what I mean by the word is supreme. And I think we need to do this in our homes. We need to make sure the word is supreme in our homes. Right? If you read Second Timothy, he, he talks about uh, this, this phrase, 
because you know from whom you learned it. All right, if you go back to just one page over, maybe not even a page over, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Right? This, this, this word of God was, was first and foremost in the home of Timothy. Right? He learned it from his grandma. Or he learned it from his mom. He learned it from his grandma. And I'm assuming that it, the, the chain goes longer. Right? It was first and foremost in his home. And this is not just by accident. This is something that if you read Deuteronomy, you see all the time. Write these words on your doorposts. Write them on your foreheads if you can. Write them everywhere. Make sure you're going to put this word where you see it all the time. May you always be reminded of the words of God. Put it where you're going to see it. Put it where you're going to be reminded of it. And just be sustained by this. Right? Make the word first and foremost in your homes is what he's saying. And, and make the word central in your homes. Don't be afraid to talk about scripture at home with your family, with your kids. Don't be afraid to talk about scripture. Don't be afraid to, to read scripture. This is something that I need to get better at. Don't be afraid to, to, to talk to your kids about questions they have about God. Don't be, don't be afraid of making the word central in your homes. The word needs to be central. It needs to be first and foremost in your homes. It also needs to be first and foremost in the church. The word needs to be first and foremost in the church. If you go back to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, we're staying in the same place. Kind of. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, again, he's at the end of his life here. He's writing this letter to, to, to Timothy, who's, who's now at the end of his life, but he's about to start this ministry here in, in this church. And, and here's what he writes. In verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. This is kind of Paul's final words to Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And I want you to just to hear this word. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations and your hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I want you to hear verse 3 again, and I want you to just see the importance of the word of God being first and foremost in the church. Here's what it says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That sound familiar to you? There are so many counterfeit gospels out there today that look nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the time has come when people turn away from sound doctrine and they look for teachers and pastors who are willing to say the things that they want to hear. I hope that you know that the word of God is first and foremost for me as I preach. I'm not saying anything that you want to hear. In fact, I think probably some of you wish I would say some more things that you want to hear. But we need to make sure, we need to keep the word of God first and foremost in our homes, 
and in our church. This needs to be the driving focus of who we are each and every day. Amen. And there's this, even Second Timothy talks about the ways in which that, this, that we can assure that to happen. <clears throat> right? With the, the scriptures, how from infancy you've learned the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking. It's useful for correcting. It's useful for training. All of these things are ways that we can keep the word first and foremost in our lives. This is the way that, we can, that the word can shape us if we allow it to. Right? This, this word of God is, is essentially sanctifying us. It is, it, is, it is allowing us to be more and more like Jesus as we read, as we continue to follow the instructions in here. The word, the word educates us. And, but we need to be careful here because sometimes the word, we can read into the word of God what we want it to say because our itching ears, as Second Timothy would say, want to hear those things. We need to make sure that, that what we are reading in the word of God is balanced by other things in the word of God. You can take any one scripture way out of context and hear what you want to hear out of it. Right, but scripture is consistent in what it teaches us, how, to, how it teaches us to live. We can, like I said, we can sometimes read into it and get what we don't, don't, don't make the word fit your life. Don't make the word fit a framework that you have decided the word of God needs to fit in. Right? The word of God can shape you and it can teach you if you allow it to teach you and to shape you. Right? It educates us. It, it convicts us. It convicts us. Hopefully you have been convicted by the word of God lately. This word of God has the power to shape and to convict us. And, and by convicting, I'm talking about when you know you're in the wrong. When you know that, that, that an attitude that you've had or an opinion that you've had is, is not biblical. Let it, let it convict you. Amen. Let it convict you. Let the word of God convict you and shape the way that you think and shape the way that you, that you view certain things or certain even political topics or whatever. Right? This is, let the word shape your beliefs. Amen. Let it convict you of the ways in which your thinking has been wrong. Let it convict you. Let it, let it correct you. Let the word correct you. If it's not good enough and it's not enough to have the word convict you, you're like, oh yeah, this probably isn't biblical, but not change a thing. Let it correct you. Change the way that you're living. Change the way that you're thinking. It instructs us. The word instructs us. And the word equips us. Think about a football team with me real quick. Nobody playing in the Pro Bowl today is going to go on the field without a helmet, without some shoulder pads. Quarterbacks are probably going to wear some rib cages. There's going to be pads on their legs, some of them. Why? Because they're equipped for what they're about to do. Some of us in our lives attempt to go out and to, to live the Christian life without being first equipped by the Word of God. Without being first taught and instructed and convicted and corrected by the words that are in this book. This is a powerful book that has the, the power to equip you for every good work, it says. We talked about those good works last week. You can listen to the podcast if you want to hear more. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what it means to have the word just be so a part, so central to who we are. 
to allow it to do its work in us, that we might be prepared for every good work that, that Ephesians chapter 2, we've been prepared in, in advance for us to do. And lastly, we need to, we need to understand that the word is sufficient. It's sufficient. This word is sufficient. This is the whole point of the manna. That the word of God is sufficient for you. There are no extras needed. You can feed yourself with, with all kinds of bread and all kinds of food. Bring this to 2018. You can, you can feed yourself with all kinds of books in the Lifeway store. You can, you can feed yourself with all kinds of, of topical books and how do I, how do I pray better and how do I do it. This is, those are great books to read, but this is sufficient for you. Let this be central to your life. Let this be the focus of your reading. Let, this, let, let the word of God shape you. This word is sufficient. Here's the problem, though. The Israelites in, in Egypt, are, as they're wandering in the desert, they didn't trust God. Why else would they be saying, hey, why has God led us out here to do this? Right, has God literally just let, we, we were sitting around pots of meat, we weren't hungry in Egypt, we were well fed, and yeah, we had to work hard, but we weren't dying. They didn't trust that God knew what he was doing. And think about this, they had just seen God do the, the ten plagues. They had just seen, I mean, you can imagine seeing even just the last one should be enough, right? The, the angel of death coming over, and because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, they were passed over. Their firstborns lived. You think that would be enough to trust that God knew what he was doing. But two months and 13 days later, they're in the wilderness, and they're like, hey, what is God doing? Are we, did he just lead us out here to die? Uh, we, we were at least fed there. Come on, God, like, you can do better than this. Come on, I don't, I don't trust that you're going to feed me. And so God says, you know, I'm going to rain down manna from heaven for you just so you know that I can feed your stomach. But more importantly than feeding your stomach, you need to know that you are sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the question this morning. Do we trust it? Do we trust the word? Now, there are some of us who might have some of these same questions that we're going to talk about in the small group session. You can have questions and still trust the word. In fact, I, I honestly believe, I have always believed this, that God encourages our questions. God does not want blind trust. God would, God would want you to question because he knows that in the questioning, the answer will lead to him. Do you trust it? Do you trust the word? Do you trust that God knows what he's doing? That yes, God can, God can feed you. God can fill your stomach. God can do all kinds of stuff for your life. Yes, God can perform miracles, even though you don't maybe see them often. God can perform miracles. God can do all of this. But, but the main thing is God, he can do all of that, but God can sustain you from the words that come from his mouth. And we have, have something that, the, like I was reading earlier, that something that the early Christians had, they didn't have. Not everybody in the 10th and 11th and all these centuries had a Bible that they could call their own. I take it for granted sometimes that I can write in my Bible and I can star and I can underline and I can highlight and I can do all kinds of stuff because it's mine. 
These people had to rely on, on other teachers. They had to rely on other people to tell them what they believed. Right? This, this book, this is a book that we can trust. This is a book that I want you to be hungry for. This is a book that I want you to feast on. This is a book that, that, that can sustain you more than any, any bit of food, any meal, anything that you could fill your stomach with ever could. Do you trust it? Maybe you're in the wilderness right now. And it hasn't really been that long since you've trusted in God. Maybe you're two months and 13 days into the wilderness and you're beginning to question. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? At least back there I was well fed. At least back there I could say my life was going pretty well. What are you doing right now in my life, God? I want you to hear these words of God. Man does not live on bread alone. Man does not live on a good retirement account. Man does not live on the things that we see on earth as sustaining us, but on every word from the mouth of God. Every word from the mouth of God. Do you trust it? I really hope that you come to one of these small groups. Because like I said, that's just a very broad overview this morning. This is what Scripture teaches about Scripture. What about these questions that people have? How do we dialogue about this? How do we, how do we talk about these questions? Man, I hope, I hope that you will come to a small group and talk through some of these questions and dialogue about some of these questions. And, and like I said, I, I, I haven't given you any answers. I haven't equipped you for your Monday night or Thursday night small group. You're not going to be one step ahead because I've just given you the answers that are going to be asked. No. I want you to struggle with these questions. I purposefully have not gone after any of the questions that you will talk about in the small group because I, I want you to fight through them together. <clears throat> I want you to dialogue together. I want you to think about these together. I want you to, to, to really put yourself in the place of someone who, who has these doubts and has these questions. And, and here's what I don't want out of small groups. I don't want you to feel like you have to come away with answers. I don't want you to feel like we have just solved the world's problems in this small group tonight. We have come away from, with all of these answers for this small group. I want you to come away just having an understanding of how people think and how, people, how you can dialogue about these questions intelligently and not just be like, well, 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 well the Bible. It's not an answer. It's not an answer. How do I have a conversation about this person who thinks that Miracles don't exist, and so why can I trust the Gospels? How can, I, how can I trust the Gospels that were written, you know, 30 years after Jesus died? How can I trust that they, are, that they are real? How do I trust that they actually knew what they were writing about Jesus and that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher? How do I, how do I, how do I dialogue about that? How do I talk about the fact that, you know, there's, there's so many different contradictions in Scriptures? How do I talk about that? How do I talk about the fact that this verse says this and this verse says this and... They're not matching. How, how do I talk about that? Right? Come to a small group. Now let's have the conversations together. 
One of the reasons I didn't want to talk about those questions today is because I feel like it's not beneficial for you to hear the answers to those questions coming from the pulpit. It's beneficial as you begin to talk and wrestle and think about these questions together. That You might hear some opinions that you're like, well, I haven't thought about that before. I haven't ever thought about it that way. I haven't thought about it this way. This book is so powerful. This book is the word of God that has the, the, the capability to shape you and equip you and to, to, to correct you and instruct you. And this, this book is a powerful book. Let the book do its work. And let's digest the Bible together this week in small groups. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we are, again, just so, so thankful for you, so thankful for this word that we hold in our hands, God. We've, we've talked a lot about this book today. We've talked about the history of this book, and we've talked about what Scripture says about itself. But God, may we, this week, just be able to wrestle with some of these questions that are going to be in the small groups. May we not feel like we need to just answer every question, but may we just dialogue and talk and, and just have, come to an understanding of these questions, God. God, would you already, right now, today, begin to prepare the hearts of those who will be in a small group this week? Begin to move in them and to, to give them a, a grace and an understanding as they begin to, to dialogue about these questions. Would none of us go in trying to, to solve the problems of the world, to solve these questions about Scripture, but may all of us go in with an open heart and an open mind to hear from you. God, would you prepare us this week? We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> and let me just pray this prayer of blessing over you before we leave. May the God of love and grace and peace sustain you through his word this week. May you be hungry for it. May you desire it. And may he fill your may he satisfy you this week with his word. May you go. May you make a difference in your community for him. Go in peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.